Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I get to talk to high achievers about innovation and leadership and business and investing. And uh, this episode, I'm really excited to have Trevor Bame. Trevor, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's talk about Techstars, Levers, uh, your your transitioning business now from venture studio to cash flowing businesses. Get, catch people up who didn't catch the last show. Yeah, absolutely. So to give a, a little bit of my background, I've been uh, an, either an operator, founder, operator, or investor in mostly early stage companies for 10 plus years. A lot of that investing I did at the Accelerated Program Techstars, where I worked as a managing director. And uh, in the last couple of years, have started to transition my focus more into the uh, cash flowing small business, mostly local small business sector. And I, uh, uh, in, in the course of that uh, process, have been uh, working with a couple of friends. We, we've got a group called Saturn Five, and we've bought a portfolio of about 15 companies to date. Uh, but we didn't start out that way. We started actually as a venture studio with the uh, aspiration to launch and grow big, uh, sexy venture-backed startups and, and kind of found our way into this space. So we were talking for a couple of minutes before, like a lot of times what you're doing is recruiting executive talent to come run these companies. Uh, is the, why don't you give people the website and tell people, you know, what kind of folks you're looking for for that? So Saturn5.com is, is the website. I'll tell you a little bit more about our portfolio and, and um, what kind of companies we work with. And then we'll talk more about what the, you know, what the leadership looks like there. Uh, so kinds of companies. Uh, we have a portfolio of businesses that are mostly tied to what you think of as like local, often uh, services-based B2B companies. So uh, a landscaping, residential it's own actually consumer, but residential landscaping installation or uh, commercial landscaping or concrete curb and gutter paving uh, or portable, portable buildings, rentals and sales. Uh, we also have a couple of adventure tourism companies, whitewater rafting, TVs, uh, fly fishing, hiking, that kind of stuff. We're based mostly in Colorado, but we've got a national footprint. So a lot of those companies are in the Denver area or kind of on the front range of Colorado, of, uh, in Colorado, uh, but, but look nationally as well. So that's kind of the type of business. So if you think about, you know, that kind of company, um, you, we, we've been working with this portfolio. We're, we're very hands-on. We're kind of, we take an operator first approach to this, but at the end of the day, uh, we only work if we've got leaders that are on the ground operating those companies who are treating really the, take full responsibility of the success or the failure of that, you know, of that world. And so uh, what, what I spend a lot of my time doing right now is figuring out how to either attract those leaders, um, put them into great companies, and then figure out how to help them succeed. So those can be anywhere from CEOs of, of uh, a garden center and nursery to a general manager you know, of a given store to sometimes you know, specific sales or, or operations leaders. What kind of revenue ranges per business are you looking at? Yeah, so we focus mostly from a kind of profitability standpoint. So our targets are, you think about EBITDA, one to five million is about what we target. So if you sort of extrapolate that out from a revenue perspective, you know, maybe that three to 30 million in revenue. Um, 
give, give or take, ramp up or down depending on how profitable it is. Yeah, you know, so um, starting my my real career, as I call it, <laughs> in investment banking at Citigroup, uh, on the mergers and acquisition side, it's some you know I haven't kind of kept a finger on it at certain times. Uh, I'm I'm interested what kind of multiples that size of the market is seeing these days. Yeah, good question. And, you know, I wonder how much this is going to change uh, over the, you know, the next Couple coming months and years. Yeah, but you, you would generally see, uh, depending on the type of the business, so let's, I'll make a couple of assumptions, right? We're, we're not talking about uh, recurring revenue companies. Sometimes you could be, but um, that can, that can command a higher multiple um, if there's a recurring uh, revenue dynamic to it. And um, you're talking about that size range, sort of usually, you know, million dollar EBITDA is kind of your floor. And then once you get past 5 million, you know, either the multiples go down or up to pay, based on that. And um, and then you're not really talk often talking about technology businesses. So all of those things could, you know, affect, you know, what you think about in range. But generally three to five times EBITDA is what, you're, what those tend to trade at. Um, it could be more, right? If you've got recurring revenue, larger company, you know, high growth or high interest industry. And then it's going to be less if you've got something that's smaller, higher customer concentration. Like say you've got 80% of your revenue coming from one customer, stuff like that. It's so interesting when you look at it from like a Warren Buffett lens of compounding cash flows, right? And you know, if you had a reliable income stream that you could buy at a, at a triple, I mean, like think about the kind of, the kind of numbers people take on bonds, which I know is not a one-to-one -one comparison, okay? But like, as an investor, like if you could buy a 33% income stream and then compound it into other ones, like it's kind of awesome. Now, I get there's a lot of headaches and you got to find the people who want to run it and they like everything's easier said than done. But like, it's funny when you think about like how often the stock market, like even an average stock will get 15 times, right? So it's like, Essentially, you're buying a six and a half percent income stream instead of a thirty-three percent income stream, right? Yeah, and that's the opportunity, right? That's what that's what got us interested in space. One of the things that got us interested in this space to begin with, as I mentioned, we we started more in the high growth venture backed space, which I still have interest in, and um, there's still a lot of things I like about that, and I think it's a good fit for a particular kind of opportunity or for a particular kind of company. Uh, but but as we started to get into this, um, so so basically our solution to the venture studio model, which is beautiful in a lot of ways, but one of the challenging things about it is you've got to launch all these companies, and then you've got to figure out a way to pay your own bills, right? While those companies succeed, because you're not going to see return on that even if they work, right? For five, maybe ten years. So our idea, and this is um, this was actually these are friends of mine, but I wasn't on board at the time. This is when I was at, still at TechStar. So Evan and Max are two founding partners, and, and they were like, you know, what we're gonna do? We're gonna uh, we're gonna buy a kind of traditional cash flowing small business that'll kick up cash, that'll pay our day to day operations, and we'll go do this really cool stuff. And and they started to look at it after they'd done one or two of these deals, and they thought, wait a second, on a risk adjusted basis. This is very interesting. And if you can get a couple of things right, you can actually see it creates some, some pretty attractive opportunities. Now, those couple of things turn out to be very difficult. There's a reason 
these businesses trade at the multiples that they do. Right. Uh, and, and most of that has to do with lack of yeah. redundancy or systems, uh, key man risk, um, you know, it could be customer concentration, the kinds of reasons that, you know, this becomes much more painful than it sounds on paper. But, uh, but yeah, it's, if you like that kind of hard, it's a lot of fun. You know, what's interesting though. So, uh, two days ago, I had the, the wealthiest individual you've ever had on the show. Okay. Guy's worth $6 billion because he grew Lululemon to 40 billion. Okay. Chip Wilson. Awesome. And it was funny because he, he was so lively, energetic guy, such a great guest because he's just, just giving it to you straight, like giving you the real truth, right? And uh, I was saying, hey, what's the big difference between running a billion-dollar business versus the multi-multi-billion-dollar business? And he says, you know, because he, he'd run West Beach before that, which is like one of the best snowboarding brands that ever existed, and they'd done skate and stir, surf and stuff. And he says, it was a book that I read right before I started Lululemon. Have you heard of the book, The E-Myth? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I've heard of The E-Myth. Everybody in my company has to read it. We've given it out. And, and what's funny as we talked about it is this idea of like simple concepts executed very well. You know, like The, the E-Myth, for anybody who doesn't know, it's kind of like, can you, build a, can you build a better hamburger than McDonald's? Well, probably. If you just started with hamburger, it would be a better hamburger than McDonald's. But like, can you build a better hamburger delivery system than McDonald's? It's like, ooh, you know, their system's so good, even teenagers can't break it, right? And so how do you like take those lessons to your business? I know you know this stuff, Trevor, but um, it was fascinating to like how like fully he embraced, how fully he embraced such simple concepts of duplication and repeatability and, and uh, grew a $40 billion empire. Yeah, I, I love that story. And I love how, I mean, Emus is my, I, I love that book. I read it early on in my journey as an entrepreneur and had a big impact in terms of how I thought about business generally. And it's often thought of as a book for small businesses, right? Small business owners. And so to see it embraced, right? At a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar level, I think both speaks to, um, honestly, the, you know, the wisdom and in, in insight of, you know, him as an operator, but also to the, you know, to the power of the concept, right? That, to your point, right? Simple concepts executed well can have a huge, huge impact. And, and that's a lot of what I think if you think in the small business sector, it's, it's a, um, there's hard, but it's not necessarily complex. And, figuring out what it is that what are the few things you need to execute on and then what can actually unlock repeatability like once you once you once you focus on those once you figure out what those are and then and then learn how to focus on them they can do all kinds of all kinds of things for you i was advising a ceo this morning um, traditional industry got about 50 million in bookings right now and we were talking about the e-myth and the only thing i add to it is the Checklist Manifesto. Do you know that book? I do, though I I haven't read it. It's I, I it's it feels like one of those books that I have sort of gotten through osmosis, right? All of uh, it's been t sort of talked about and among uh, my peers, right? So much, but yeah, t t tell me more about it. Uh, I guess for my sake, yeah. Here, here's my sales pitch listeners. for it: is it's this surgeon who said. Essentially, like, why is it that skyscrapers don't fall down? 
Like they just never fall down, right? But uh, surgeons, like my buddies, sometimes cut off the wrong leg in surgery. Pretty, you know, pretty basic thing here. How does that happen? Like my buddies are smart enough. Like they went to 12 years of school after they went to 12 years of school. Like it's not an intelligence problem. Like what is going on? So he just started going around the world and he went to Formula One pit crews and he went to interesting hospitals and um, airline pilots and people who build skyscrapers and just like these high, these like high impact, high performance situations where like failure is not an option. And he's just like checklist, checklist everywhere. He's like in the skyscraper instance, he would like go into their construction, like, like it's like a trailer on site. And in the trailer would be checklists of the checklists, you know? And he's like, we don't rely on human memory. We don't rely on, on um, somebody being smart enough. You know, it's kind of like, a, I think Ronald Reagan said something about like uh, Russian saying of like, trust but verify. I can't remember who said it. Yeah. And, yep. um, and so then he takes it and brings it back to the medical industry. And of course has like all sorts of resistance, like give me a break, that's so basic. Don't you know? Don't you know how many degrees I have? I don't need a checklist. And then the ones who would just have drastically better outcomes. And it's just like the humility to embrace the simplicity. Where maybe some of the complexity comes in or, or where the hard part comes in is actually how do you define the checklist? Right. And I think one of the challenges with even with Emith, with business in general, is figuring out how to organize the work is a very significant and essential task and can have a huge impact kind of regardless of the content, right, of, of what you're trying to organize. But there's a whole other question around, like, how do you even know, right, like, what, what's important to begin with, right? How do you make sense of that? You know, I, so I've read many different versions of the E-Myth. My favorite is E-Myth Revisited, if anybody's looking for a recommendation. Um, and I like that it gives you a start where he's going through like, what about this? What about this? But I actually feel like people like you would have an extra advantage because, you know, folks who have like lived in the world of product market fit, uh, in a way, it's almost like the product market fit of the manual for how to run this business so that even teenagers couldn't screw it up. I'm like, did we give the right instruction? Did we give it away? Did we train it enough? Was it followed? How's our accountability? It's almost like the product market fit of our operating system. I don't know if you see it differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I understand what you're saying. I think maybe it, I, I take it in two different directions. One is thinking about how having early stage experience in particular forces you to um, ask the fundamental questions right? because you just don't, you don't have anything yet. Right? So you have to like, the point of sort of product market fit, finding product market fit generally, it sort of forces you to boil down what matters most here. And that was a lot of the inspiration and, and some of the insight around levers, which is the, the last time we chatted, we, we, we talked a lot about, which is really about figuring out like, how do you unlock repeatability in the business through identifying what the levers of control are. And so it's very much about what's the, what's the bridge between you may have vision for what you want to see in the world. You may understand the tactics of how to execute, but what's the bridge between those things to help you figure out what matters most, what matters right now? How does that organize into what actually drives the business? And so I think there's like, there's a lot to be uncovered there. And when you have, a, when you get into a stream in which you're asking those questions, 
over and over and over again. What do we really need to know here? I actually think investors can sometimes have a similar kind of muscle they're exercising because they're very quickly having to try to figure out what are the three questions I really have to answer here, right? What do I actually have to believe? I mean, we just had your co-author, Amos Schwartzfab, on again. He was great. But uh, I don't think we can say it enough. Can you tell people about the three W's? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the core first parts of the framework of, of levers. It sounds very simple. And when you unpack it, it can be, uh, maybe it, it is simple, but it's, it's not easy. So W3, who is your customer? What are they buying from you? And why are they buying it? And, and that language is explicit. So who, who is your customer? Not just generally, who is your customer? Our customer is, you know, SaaS companies, you know, in the U.S. market. No, okay, well, which kind, you know, of what size, uh, doing, you know, what stage in their journey, um, serving what kind of customer? And then even more specifically, who within that organization are you targeting? Right? Who's the decision maker and, you know, in what department and what, what motivates them? So that's the who, trying to get as specific as you can around who this customer is. And then once you've identified that, what is it that they're buying? Not what you're selling, which is the, sort of the easy answer of, oh, well, we have a productivity tool. Uh, no, what, do you, what, do you, what are they buying? Right? What are they actually getting from you? And then finally, why? And, and usually if you can figure out how, to, how they measure that why, right? What, what's actual, how do they quantify the value they're getting from the thing? That's when you're much closer to, to unlocking something there. Well, okay, can we talk about this? I was thinking about this, uh, getting ready for the episode today and thinking, so let's start with the, the so for, for us, for this business specifically, where we're building um, you know, so investment fund managers or CEOs are like, I want a show like Jess's and my team will build them a show too. And um, it's mostly kind of like folks in the kind of single double digit millions CEOs who are like, they need to get the word out more or they, they want to make high level connections, things like this, right? That's kind of the who. And so I was thinking like, not what are we selling, but what are they buying? And I think what they're buying is um, access. like. There's so many places that can edit a podcast for you. I mean, like that's not a rare skill per se, right? But, and there's other places they'll find guests for you. And they'll say, oh, we'll try and get you really high profile guests. But we don't know of anybody else that's like willing to guarantee 50 millionaires a year as your guests or senior executives at big high companies. I'm not going to guarantee you which millionaire or which exec. But you're like, you can give us categories. And because I've had like almost 800 episodes of the show for, so far between previous guests, friends, clients, like we can, we can, we can deliver that. So like, I realized, like, as I was asking myself the question, it feels like what they're buying from me is, I don't want to do anything except show up. Like, I'm too busy. So like, I'm, I'm buying my time back. I'm having experts who this is all they do. Like, I've got a great CMO, but they don't do podcasts. Like, I'm buying experts who make it so I only have to show up an hour a week, and I get this kind of access. Um, but but going to the question of why, how do I think through the question of why? That's great. So before I get to the why, because I think it's, it is obviously the next and, and critical question. I think a way to unpack that is actually to start with how do I know the what? Mm. Right? So what, what is telling you, right? What evidence do you have that that is the what? That'd be the place I'd start first, right? As you think about that, what did it, like what, what data do you have that tells you access, time back, are the, are the what's? I guess just from our, like, who's actually buying it from us 
and like qualitative, like what they say to me when they're buying it. That's that's probably where I'm getting that. Maybe that's not scientific enough. No, and I think it's you know one of the actually one of the criticisms I think, and I, I think it's a good one uh, when we think about um, we talk a lot, Amos and I, and other co-authors of Levers talk a lot about data-driven decision making, you know, data-driven run, running a company in a data-driven manner, and and often you can one of the criticisms. Is, you can get sort of too quant heavy on this and you can actually sort of lose the forest from the trees. And a lot of the best decision makings are sort of intuitively driven. You can't you know, possibly know. And, and so I think th there's all that to say uh, there's, there is a difference between finding something that's statistically significant you know, for a, a data scientist who's dealing with you know, thousands or millions of you know, points of data and an entrepreneur who's just trying to make decisions in almost complete uncertainty, right? like, like what they're trying to do is just get enough information, right? enough, like gather enough data points up that so they could say, yeah, let's go that way, right? That's a good enough bet to try. And then they figure out, does that work or not? And based on that information, they either do more of it or they do something else, right? They're just trying to figure out what works and do more of it. So long, long explanation to say, yeah, I think that's exactly where, you know, what kind of answer you'd want. So, okay, so if you have these people that are talking to you, there's like, you're actually getting customers who are buying uh, based on put what they're telling you is, hey, this is the thing that I'm getting this value out of it, then I would say, I think a lot of the why can come to, okay, well, how would you, if you had to put a number on that, you know, experience, what would it be? Like, how, how would you make sense of that value if you had to quantify it? And maybe they're going into, well, I'm like, literally, I've saved, you know, 10 hours of my time, you know, that I would have spent elsewhere. I don't know if this is if I'm thinking about this right, but like, you know, between us, junior and senior editor, creative director, you know, project manager, couple booking, you know, junior and senior booking person, uh, and like, uh, the graphic designer, the motion graphics designer, like it's like nine different skill sets that happen for each episode, right? And, um, so it's like literally, I don't have to hire those nine people because I've got some of our, our marketing staff could probably do some of those things, but it's not what their it's not their expertise, what they do all day. So I'm like. I'm not going to hire nine new people, right? And, um, and like all of just like honestly the scheduling, like getting access and playing the calendar game between high profile people. I mean, it's it can be a nightmare. I mean, the 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 chains between assistants go so long of like juggling, and like if we do co-hosts, like I think we did you and Amos at the same time. Oh my gosh, it doesn't it doesn't make it like thirty percent more. It makes it three hundred percent harder to get scheduled. But like, it's like. It's usually somebody who's like, they've thought about having a book because we'll, we, you know, with our partners, we'll like ghostwrite their books or have journalists write thought leader pieces for them, get speaking opportunities. Like it's kind of a whole creative, creative credibility marketing package. It just starts with a show, right? But it's like, it's usually somebody who's thought about having a podcast at some point and they're like, well, that sounds like a lot of work. You know, I wonder, you know, and their, their marketing team's like so busy just marketing their product. It's not like they have all the spare time to like learn a new skill set, right? And also when they're going to put their name on it, they're kind of, they're, they're not interested in like that much experimentation. Like they kind of want it to be good right off the bat. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't want their staff learning how to do it on their reputation. Um, and so like they see, they just like go to JessLarson.net, see all these guests and they're like, oh, I wish I was friends with all those people. Right. And we're talking about, we're talking about it. And then when I tell them, 
our goal is to only use an hour a week of your time. And we do everything else, like literally all the guests booking, the research, da, 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 you just like the day before you're like, oh, I wonder who's on tomorrow. Look at the sheet, who they are. You know everything about them. We did the research for you. Show up and make friends for an hour and then be like, hey, let's grab dinner after. Or, you know, like, let's let me send you a book. Let's stay friends. And then we take like literally everything afterwards, cut it into six different formats, post it across five different social media. You get 100 social media posts a month that you didn't do any of that. Right. And they're like, ooh. Uh, okay, how much was this again? Like, that's where, like, the tipping point happens. It's like, they already knew they want fancy people. They've kind of been thinking about having a show. And then when it gets to the, like, hold on, this isn't going to suck up my, my team's time or my time, that's where, like, the buying. It's like, actually, we, let's have a conversation. I actually want to get my CMO. Like, let's, let's really talk about this, Jess. Like, that's that, like, so that's why I said that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love it. And, and I... A great way to start to articulate the why that you know that's driving that motivation right there is once they're at that point, then you can start to say, for instance, wow, in an hour, like look at how much time I can save, or like, or like look at blank, right? So they're going to start to talk about it. You know, they're going to start to sort of begin to put substance around it automatically, and then you can encourage that by asking questions: What does that do for you? Like if you had, you know, X amount of time, or if you if you could get like access like that, what is it? What is that going to do? Yeah, that, that's for good. Because normally they like they have to go to conferences or join like really expensive CEO clubs and go on like the two day events and the, you know, and there's still no guarantee they're gonna get, they're gonna bump into the right person. And a lot of times, like the level of people we're introducing them to aren't even at the conferences. You know, they sent someone a level below them to the conference, right? And so it's like. Tra like actual expense, travel time, and like you kind of don't know what you're going to get, uncertainty factor. Um, and this is, I'm glad this is like recording because we're like trying to train our sales reps to sell this without me going forward. Um, so this is like good for me to get on video. <laughs> good. Well, you, you can pass it along to the team. And, you know, I think this actually goes to a, um, a different part of the the levers framework, but I, I think it fits well when we start talking about this idea of like, you know, digging into the why. You know, what are, what are people getting and then why? It often follows along a pretty predictable if this then that chain. Meaning like as you think about, you know, whatever this, you know, whatever the to accomplish, it's going to unlock or create something, create some kind of new opportunity, create some you know, say you can go after. And if you can start to get like a beautiful place to be is when you are sort of side by side with your customer, imagining that if this, then that chain, if we could, if we had more time, right? If we could like get access to that person, imagine the kinds of things we could go achieve. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, but by the way, uh, shameless plug, anybody who just wants to learn how to have a show for free because they, you know, they're not ready to invest. I'm actually going to teach a free class for like, just email me or reach out on LinkedIn or something. We're going to do a free class to like teach you all the stuff we know and you can do it yourself, especially for my, like, my startup founders. Um, I want to talk about investing though, for switching gears here. Um, how, many, how many startup and technology investments do you think you were part of from the Techstar days and everything else you've done pre-Saturn 5? And... Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, more than 50. Yeah. Okay. So I'm interested in this transition more to the cash flow investing, right? And 
you know, Warren Buffett's and his followers, you know, look at like Howard Marks at $160 billion oak tree or, or uh, you know, um, Bruce Flat, you know, $600 billion Brookfield. You know, these are hardcore, how do you take Warren Buffett compound interest investing principles outside the stock market kind of guys, right? And they're constantly talking about like um, value, like you make the most money by going where everyone isn't. Like it's harder, but that's where the most money is, right? And so like I have a, a, a friend who, maybe I won't say who it is because he's been on the show, but he's made several million dollars by running a marketing agency only for boring businesses. But he goes to like the most boring businesses he can and does like really great content marketing for them on a recurring basis. And they just wipe the floor with their competition. So they never let, they never fire him. And like, he's not going after Nike and like the cool accounts. So he doesn't have all these other agencies trying to steal his business. And like our commercial real estate fund, we we're in my buddy's portfolio and he does things like buy really ugly industrial buildings because they have such a high rate of return, you know? And he's like, he doesn't care about the curb appeal. He yep. cares what the profit margin is. And he's not like investing for vanity. He's investing for cash flow. And uh, he doesn't yeah. have a ton of competition for ugly industrial buildings in a tertiary environment. Yeah, I think what you just said is, I think probably more significant, you know, than we pay attention to in the uh, investing, either entrepreneurship or investing world, which is how much of our decision making uh, are we actually basing off of ego, right? Like what, what, and, and, and I maybe like, maybe I not even to put a, a sort of a, you know, normative judgment on that, like, but how much of it is about like who I'm associated with, how I feel right as a part of this deal. It like all of those things actually can be, they're giving you something, right. And they, and people are like quite literally putting a premium, right. On those on that feeling, right? Not necessarily the return, but the experience that I'm getting from the status, the like the the ego, the whatever dynamic to it is, and that that's great, right? If that's it, 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 I think I think if you're intellectually honest with yourself around like what you're doing, right, and how that's working, then I think great, more power to you, have fun, right? There there are like you know reasons to do that, um, and 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 great, but it. Um, yeah, when you start to look at where do I actually see real value and and real opportunity, where where are people not looking? You know, to your point, you can um, and if you just love, if you just love the this the hunt, right? If you if you just like if you're really if, if at the end of the day, what's driving you is either you know discovering undervalued assets, right, and 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 taking advantage of those or or building companies, right, like you know, customer by customer, you know, bet by bet, when those kinds of things become sort of satisfying to you in and of themselves, so then it starts, then you suddenly you're in, you know, ugly industrial buildings or you're out on a snowplow at 2 a.m., you know, well, whatever. Well, he, he's, so he's kind of a mentor of mine. It's funny. He's like one of my mentors who's younger than me, okay? And he's like, people laugh at me for how ugly my real estate is and I laugh at them because they don't know how cheap I got it, Right. And, That's right. and what's funny is instead of having all his buildings be the sexy part, because he's got some cool looking, like beautiful office buildings he bought for cheap during COVID. Okay. Yeah. But like his rate of return is the sexy part. And that's how he, like he, so he recently got his portfolio over 500 million and 
It's because he wasn't selling. He wasn't selling the real estate. He was selling the return. Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I want to talk about this, like building it into your circle of competence, as Buffett would call it, right? Of the like, we can take businesses that normally have struggles and we are going to build mastery around coming in, systemizing, um, leadership development, expansion, and we're going to build a skill set that's not that average and we're going to go buy, you know, arguably undervalued assets. And this is going to be our sport. Um, when it's not as sexy and like, you know, like at the coolest event saying like, oh yeah, we're, we're really looking at getting another curb and gutter business. Like we're just, we're right there. People aren't like, you're kidding, Trevor. Really? Yeah. When you tell them like our quantum computer, our quantum computer is the best AI generator possible for the satellites we're launching. You know what I mean? Like the business media wants to interview you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then what did it take to build the competency around not just kind of searching for or or being attracted to those kinds of opportunities, but then even adding value to them. And and that's actually I should say, like, you know, at at um we have a philosophy at Saturn Five, and which is not sort of certainly not exclusive to us, but but we adopt it um along with people that we really respect, which is when we're coming into one of these companies, um, the very first approach, sort of posture is one of humility. Like, like often these are uh, profitable businesses that have been profitable for a long time. And uh, th there's a phrase that's often used in this world. It's enduringly profitable, right? They've been kicking up cash for a long time. And, and, and the only sort of wrinkle in that equation is you, right? Like you just bought this company. Like everything was the same, right? Except, except for you. So if anything is going to screw it up, it's actually, it's you, right? You're the one who's most likely to take what is a stable system, right? And turn it into something else. And so we very much uh, approach any new deal as, as first, let's do no harm. How do we become students of the business to really understand what's happening here? Because it, right now it's a, like, no matter how much, how much diligence you do, right? How much you think you know about the industry, there is inevitably always a, a sometimes very significant difference between the business you thought you were going to buy, right? Pre-acquisition and the business you actually bought. And, and you're just trying to figure that out, right? Sometimes for the first year, all you're doing is trying to figure out what is it that I actually bought and, and how does it work? And then, you know, once you can start to uncover some of those things, right, and they're, they're often very people-driven, right? There's, there's a lot to do with the culture that the owner, usually owner-operator had built, um, the pe people who are um, underneath him or her, and kind of how the business works, because there's some sort of system, even for businesses that have very rudimentary processes or systems, there is a system, right? It could be as like simple as that guy knows everything, right? And when we have a problem, we go to him and he comes up with an answer, right? And, and so figuring out what that's are, right? And then you can begin to actually play with or tinker around, like, how do we improve this? You know, what, what are the opportunities here? Well, I want to talk about this because I think that's a... That's a skill set that's not talked about enough. You know, um, there's a study by KPMG a number of years ago, and I can't remember the exact stat, but it was either 82 or 80%, 82 or 88% of businesses were worth less than the acquirer paid for them within three years. 
uh, and then never, never pass that high wide mark kind of a thing. And again, you know, I know that I'm like a nerd for Warren Buffett here, but um, you look at where he buys things and says, we will not be providing management. You know, like, like we're going to be the money, but we won't be telling you how to run your business. We won't be your management, which is really attractive to owner operators who just want like a big payday, uh, but they still love their baby and want to run it, you know, but like you look at like he buys a business for the system it is, and then he doesn't quote unquote fix it. He keeps the system it is and then compounds the cash flow. And um, basically most other acquisitions, especially by a strategic buyer, are they they buy the business and then they fix it and it becomes worth less than what they bought. I, how, you know, that's kind of one of the bigger, maybe the bigger ironies, right, of, of that that whole space. I think to jump, uh, to build on the kind of the Warren Buffett model and, and some of the thinking there, I, I go back a lot to um, a quote I found a couple of years ago in, in one of his um share investor shareholder letters and he was um is basically talking about how they thought about you know their management philosophy how they work with ceos and to your point it's very hands-off right they're basically like let's get aligned on what matters and then you full autonomy and and um i was just, just looking back at it it's it's something like you know just run the business as if you know you own a hundred percent of it it's the only asset that your, you know, your, your family has, right, that is ever going to own, and you can't sell it, right, or merge it for 100 years. Do that, and you're going to be great. And imagine, like, I think what's brilliant about this, and he talks about this, is if you can build that kind of environment, right, for, uh, like, for the leadership in that business, if you can give that kind of freedom of operating, like, how much more could you accomplish, right? Like, like how much uh, potential could you unlock right, in that team when they had the conviction and confidence that they were operating in an environment of freedom and safety to do what, you know, most benefits the company. And I think that's, one, is, is beautiful and, and, uh, and just more generally kind of a part of the, you know, the world I would want to see in the world, right? Or, or sorry, yeah, the, the, the world I'd want to see, right? And, and the values that I'd want to kind of, help um, see more of and then two requires the hard part of that is it requires leaders for which you have immense amount of trust and conviction so when when you have operators in a company that that you can come back to you and say in trust actually i heard trust defined um by uh, by one of our kind of friends and peers as if you had the same information that i had you would make the same decisions I would if I was in your seat. Mm. So like, so, so, you know, what if we, it's, it's, if we shared the same, you know, the same information, you would make the same decision that I did. That's what trust is. And, and, and when you have that, right, then all kinds of stuff can, can be accomplished, but it's hard to build, right? It's hard to identify who you can, you know, who can be that position. And then, and it's hard to keep and build over time. Yeah. What advice do you have on building it and keeping it? We talked about this actually recently as a, as a team at, at Center Five. What does it look like to to build trust, uh, and and that when you you know the power of having it and the and the risk that you don't. Um, I'll, I'll quote I'll quote somebody else now. Um, along this, Mark Salone is a, um, a longtime TechStars investor, 
in partner and and um i was at a uh, circle one time they were talking about how to be a good board member and he went around the circle he said okay i want everybody to tell me what you think the job of a board member is and everyone gave you know whatever you know there's sort of typical answers around how you would think about sort of the the duty of a board member and he says yeah that's interesting none of it's right right your job right the, the number one job of a board member is to be the first call when everything goes crazy because if you're not the first call right if you don't have the trust right th to to be the first call you're never going to get the information you need to do your job and so everything you've got to do is focused on how do I become the first call? You know, when they come and actually share problems with me, share what's really going on so that we can work on that. And I say, you know, so what did it take? Right? What did it take to do that? And a lot of it is just time. It's the ability to sort of be present to the leaders that you're working with to open, to create a space for real transparency, um, often, you know, vulnerability, intellectual honesty. Like th those are things that have to, it's the same thing to create trust in a, you know, in a marriage or, a, you know, a good friendship, like, and sort of the basic relationships that exist across all of our lives, right? But it's just laid out in a place where maybe we wouldn't, you know, always think to, to, to appreciate it. Well, what's, what's another tip you have for us when it comes to the very same on, subject? On trust. Um, well, and trust is off. Yeah. Bad. No, but, but, but trust and, you know, identifying, growing, reinforcing the kind of skill set you're looking from a team. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So um, there's so much to uh, giving people um, power to make decisions that matter to them. Right? How do you align you know, the responsibility if someone has, if some, if some decision is going to have a big impact on them, how do you make their, their decision-making ability and responsibility sort of proportionate right, to that responsibility and impact? So, so that they are, um, they have real skin in the game, right? But also real agency and autonomy, right? To make those decisions. So finding ways to, to, collapse those things it's like okay this is yours you you you're going to see the impact of this this will have a real impact on your life you obviously are going to be the one who had better insight into this than anybody else and um and that kind of culture that sort of the what what that does is actually to go back to this idea of trust it communicates trust right i am sort of i'm taking a decision um that i could be um i could be deciding i could be you know in control of myself I'm I'm now giving that to you, one, because I'm sort of extending trust to you, two, because I actually think you're going to have the best ability to make that decision, and it's more likely to stick, right, because you're in that, in the role that you are, right, it's more likely to stick if you're the one who's really driving it. And so I think a lot of, as I think about, you know, the work that, that I'm doing with CEOs is how do I not, like, give you advice or tell you what to do or, or, or kind of even, um, it's it much less figuring out like what is my sort of responsibility and job and more about how do I create clarity for you around what's the big context and vision here and then in, in, encourage your own decision-making, risk-taking within the context of your own world 
and then as quickly as I can, remove roadblocks as they come up. And so if this stuff comes at you, I'm going to figure out how to remove that. Um, my job is not to, you know, to get in your way, it's to figure out how I can speed you up as you are out making those decisions and, and figuring out what matters. If you selected the right executive team, all of those lessons can apply just within your own company, right? Absolutely. Right. That goes down, uh, you know, all the way down to the very sort of front line of the everyday decision making of the company. And and we see this, right? So in, in small businesses, you, you one, it's, it doesn't take that long to get to the front line, but but often like the front line is where the, you know, the that's where the value is created right, for the business. And it often is, you know, in this part of the market, um, sometimes where the, the, the most amount of decision-making rights or control or agency has been removed, taken away, right? There's just this assumption that like you don't, um, it, it's sort of harder to put trust in or harder to like get frontline employees to think strategically and and I think a lot of that, you know, some of that is sort of learned skills, but a lot of it is just the uh, sort of inertia, right, or the result of a bunch of of wrong assumptions, right? And that if actually to change the structure, people very naturally start thinking about if you can introduce the goal, right? They, they will start thinking about how this does or does not get you to the goal. Right? It's it's not a um, it's it is a it is a um, it's not a crazy way of thinking. Right? It, it, and it's not like very difficult uh, most people to get. They just need to be in an environment in which they're actually invited to participate in that and see real impact. If they can actually see impact on, oh, I suggested this thing or I had this idea and I got the feedback loop, showed me it worked, it didn't work, and I got the ability to, you know, to to see it through. That's motivating in a really strong way. Right? It makes me want to do a lot more of it. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground here today. What's something I didn't ask? Um, I loved, I think we did this a little bit in, um, in the last time I was on, but one of my, one of my favorite parts of, about the style of, of how you run this show is you kind of bring in your own world, right? And you're like, okay, here's what I'm wrestling with. How would we, um, you know, how would you think about this or how would your framework apply to that? And so maybe I'm sort of putting a question back on you and maybe it's a question you could, you know, you could. You could send back to me, but I guess I'm curious about like what are you thinking about right now, and what's going through your own mind in terms of what's, um, what else is, uh, what else are you trying to figure out, and um, any ways that you feel like this is or is not, um, maybe does that does that lead you to ask a question connected to some of what we talked about? Yeah, so right at our charity, childrescueassociation.org, uh, we're combating child trafficking and exploitation, right, and. We just got a really unique opportunity. We've got uh, these expert trainers who are willing to teach really advanced skills to regular police. Okay, so these are, we're talking FBI, CIA, like like this level of, of trainers, right? And you look at like child trafficking and it's kind of like the difference between, are we, are we with a tree? Are we trimming the leaves or are we cutting, the, are we cutting down at the, at the uh, trunk, right? And Unfortunately, a lot of what's happening at local law enforcement is they, they get asked to and they get trained to trim the trees, like catch this trafficker who's got this girl or this pimp who's got these five girls. And that makes all the difference to those five, 15 girls, right? But not exactly cutting the head off the snake, okay? And it's like the, the mafia, right? Like 
like local cops are often like, hey, you know, this guy needs to be arrested for uh, for beating up his wife or some other assault or something like that. And or or, or created a more significant was involved in a more significant crime. We need to get that guy from the mafia in jail. And a lot of times the local police aren't given the skills um, to how do we like take down the mafia or take like a huge bite out of them, right? Like think about like the Johnny Depp movie, Donnie Brasco, right? Where it's like, how do we get a high level guy who's really in there, who can, who can do like, uh, make a, a significant impact for our city, not just like, not just trim and, tr not just trim and leaves, right? And so we've got the folks that can teach those kind of Donnie Brasco level skills, right? And it's just not something that state and local cops have usually been trained because um, it, it's usually something you need a top secret clearance for and you've got to go to the FBI Academy at Quantico or something and there's hardly any spots and you have to get time off work, whatever. And so we've got folks who are willing to, it's, it's not quite the same. They're not teaching the classified level stuff. They're teaching the unclassified level, right? But it's kind of a startup. You know, regular cops, they don't get this training. And um, what we're finding is departments really want it. They're like, oh my gosh, please come bring us that. Like all we got taught to do is like get a criminal and tell them, give us this information, we'll put you back in jail. It's like force, it's like blackmail. And this stuff is more like romance. Like how do you get a high level person to choose that they want to do this and like stay there for years? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's like, a, how do you recruit a double agent, right? Um, yeah. and we're like, okay, it's probably 2,300 bucks an officer to do this six month long training. So call it like, I think we, I think we figured out it's like 27,000 to do for a dozen at once for a cohort. Right. And, um, I'm like really busy running this business and trying to do that evenings and weekends. And we've got volunteers, we've got great people. And it's not a huge amount of money, but like, we have to get organized to even just get like the first program done and funded and get the successes so we can get the second one. So we, you know, and so anyways, that was my lunch right before I, I came here was sitting nice. out with a wealthy entre entrepreneur, getting advice of like, okay, how do we get this seed funding to get one done so that we have the proof of like, it's not a big risk. Hey, the, the FBI, the DEA, the CIA, the, all these folks have done it for years and years. And we want to bring that skill set to folks who usually get neglected when it comes to those higher level trainings. It's not like a huge risk. It just hasn't been done. So I'm interested with that problem. Any, any advice, any things you, you come back to me with. Thanks for sharing. It's uh, a, um, something both a worthy, you know, meaningful work and a, um, and a challenging problem. I think about, uh, I, I love this, uh, framework that, is um, Cody Sims, one of the authors of the book, which is really around figuring out what are the critical assumptions or beliefs that you have about you know this what, what will drive the success of what you're doing, and 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 the the utility of the framework is really about helping you figure out what not to focus on, because you have especially in the early stages of a saying, everything is unknown and everything has to be done, and so. The job is to figure out what is actually going to matter right now. What is going to kill me right? if I if I don't you know, figure it out? And then and then what is stuff I can will be critical right? But not today. Right? It's going to be critical twelve months from now, twenty four. We're we're going to get the privilege right of solving that problem down the road. And so I think about like as you imagine. I hear two parts to this. One is 
how do we grow the organization to give us the shot at you know, trying to have the impact that we want? And then what is the, you know, what is the way in which we can then have that impact? I can imagine you know, it being useful to go through this exercise on both of those questions. Right? What do we believe to be true that's really driving, that will drive the success of getting this thing off the ground? Right? And you, you even articulated it, I think, in a, um, in, a, in a pretty succinct way, which is, you know, some of this is actually funding dependent, right? Like, we, what, what do we need? Yeah, right? like we the, need the client here is the donor. Who, like, mm -hmm. which donor? How do we appeal to them? You know, like, we've had high net worth donors in the past. We've had, like, high schools who have raised $20,000 from, like, doing car washes and, like, playing, a, playing, like, a game of Assassin where it's, like, two bucks to join and it's, like, elimination game. They get, like, 300 kids to join or something. So we've, we've had different things over the last 13 years, and there's a lot that kind of went on pause during COVID, and it's like, okay, now we're back. We've got this great opportunity. What's actually going to work to get the donations, to get the seed funding so we can get the story, so we can get more funding, so we can eventually talk, try and talk... Um, the uh, I don't know the governor into having tax dollars pay for this, and we're don't we're not even needed, right? Yep, yep, yeah. And and I haven't spent a lot of time using the W three framework as a kind of uh, you know fundraising tool for, or framework for understanding who to go after from a donor perspective. But you really could, right? This is like there's very much a who, what, and why yeah. at play here because they're like they're buying the feeling of having helped helped make life safer for children or you know like there there's mm -hmm. there's something they're buying right that's right yeah and, and it's going to be different like high schooler right it, it's going to be a the what is going to be pretty different there i would imagine right than it is a high net worth individual like one is going to think about legacy the other is going to think about uh their friends you know, meaning yeah your connection and literally it's like that's fun that sounds cool to do like that's a you know what is the alternative right <laughs> like the um the you know the substitute um you know, option here. It's like, I don't know, play basketball or like, you know, get on Instagram. Like there's, there's probably, and that's just my age. Kids probably don't know what he's on Instagram anymore, probably. But it's like, that's the, yeah. And I think it's fascinating to think through, like, what is it, what is it actually here that, um, you know, that people want and how do we, uh, maybe that can help guide us towards what makes sense for this goal, right? For this part of the belief statement, right? Of, of the, or the high priority unvalidated assumption, right? We believe that we can, you know, I'm going to make some words up, but like raise X dollar, whatever, you know, $3 million, forget what it, what it is that you said, right? $3 million. Well, let's, let's even just start with the 27,000, you know, like I think we can get, yeah. or like, I think we could get a dozen businesses to say, we'll sponsor an officer. Like, We'll do employee stuff. Maybe mm. the company will manage. You're like, we're willing to we're willing to sign up for twenty three hundred bucks, and our you know, can we find you know, can we find twelve businesses who will sponsor an officer? That's the yeah, um, beautiful, right? What it's a great uh, assumption, a beautifully stated assumption or belief statement, right? Because then you could then go try to test against it and figure out, okay, well, what's what is it that I might go do? You know, why do I one? Why do I believe that that's the right sort of path to go? And then what can I then go do? To, to go after it and it and it suddenly clarifies for you as well what your w3 might be right if you're like you've made some choices already you made choices about it's a business it's an individual it's not a high school etc you know they're giving a specific amount of money which probably implies how big that business might be right what what kind of what they might be able to do right with with their their profits or free cash flow 
and and then what's you know actually driving them what kind of business would be interested in, in giving to this kind of cause well uh maybe as we close up here uh i'll let you have a choice um what's either advice you would go back and give a younger version of yourself or some of the best advice you've ever received personally i'll do the second one um i've dear friends who've done um work in a kind of international development context for um, decades now and i kind of always go back to they, they gave me advice early on when i was in in college and um, they're those kind of beautiful people that are just we talked about this idea of sort of vanity or or, or um you know what's sort of sexy or attractive like they're just doing the work right like like they're figuring out what matters and they're just doing that work and they're actually not very concerned about what the, you know, what that, how that's going to sort of land on a broader, you know, if anybody even cares or watches, like they're focused on some doing good work. And, um, and so they've done different kinds of, um, kind of development oriented projects over the years. And one of the things, uh, they said to me, which was, um, husband and wife, um, that I thought was really insightful was, you know, the job isn't to kind of, uh, plan out maybe this goes back to i think actually i think i've done a decent job of of living this out over the last you know a couple of decades but and sorry for all the tangents but a lot of people will sort of say you got to begin with the end in mind you got to go figure out you know what do you see and work backwards for and i have you know a lot of respect and and, and have used those tools to have good effect when i think about what is sort of longer arcs right in life or business the amount of uncertainty right, or the or sort of the degrees of freedom right that exist in those you know in those arcs are so large that beginning with the end in mind seems like how could you possibly know right like how do you how do you imagine like like life is not a plain you know uh you know series of steps that lead to something big it's like most of the time it's improvised pure improvisation you're just like seeing what you got and you're trying to like make good stuff out of what you got okay so sort of go okay take that and then I go back to what um this couple told me this basically like the job is just to say yes like as you look at the things that come in front of you like you're not trying to like figure it out in some sort of grand way or really understand exactly how it's all gonna play out like at the end of the day you're looking at the opportunities in front of you and you're trying to figure out which is the which the ones that are sort of most pulling me towards um, who I want to be? Like what the the things that sort of drive me in, internally, and then how do I just say yes to that thing? And I don't even have to know like two or three or four steps down the road. Like I can have some opinions and theories about that, but I'm certainly not going to know in any kind of definitive sense. So just 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 say yes. This is the um, I I think about that a lot as I. That I try to make decisions that are impactful for me. I love that. You know, I actually feel like this show has been a bit like that. You know, it's like I didn't begin with the end in mind. I began with a milestone in mind. You know, not the final milestone. Yep. And it's like having collected, you know, you know, a decently large group of of high profile folks, and so many of them have been become friends, and some have become clients or investors or things like this. Right. Um, it's it's become valuable in ways I never could have guessed. You know, it's like, it's like I definitely guessed having a bunch of high-profile connections who I've scratched their back first and made friends with. Like that will be valuable. 
but in what way it would be valuable, I didn't, I didn't even need to, like I had so much faith that it would be valuable. I didn't need to know in what ways it would be valuable. And um, what's funny is like, I think earlier on, I would have been so worried about like the financial ramifications of like, how much is this going to make and what's this going to do for the business? And like, it sounds cheesy or something, but like, I have like such genuine friends that are like real friends, like buddies I can call at 945 at night and be like, dude, I got a business problem. Can you, can you know, like I'm texting him at 945. Hey, can you have a quick call? Like I got a, I got a business crisis. Like I can't make it. I, I need your help. I got to make a decision. And complete strangers, not in the same social networks otherwise. They're like, they're like my real buddies. And like, it kind of like makes life worth living. And, <laughs> and, um, and it's the other way around of like, I, volunteer quite a bit of time for free advice to these friends of like, they're thinking about selling the company. They're thinking about firing their best friend. They're thinking, they're trying to think how much money should they raise and how should they raise? Like, and like, I get to say, well, I don't actually know what to do, but you know what this person who was on the show said? It's like actually really fun. I love that. Yeah. And the value of, I, I love that. Like one, uh, it's just not, not much more need to be said in terms of the value of friendship and um, how that can have all kinds of impacts that you you can't possibly anticipate. And one of which is you're, you become a collector of good stories, right? When you're around good friends, then you get great stories and those can become useful, right? Especially when you're helping other friends deal with other stuff. Okay, thanks again for doing this. Yeah, no, it's been a blast. Thanks for okay. having me. Bye, everyone.